So there was like a freshman college girl and whatever. She'd been studying in the library for finals week, you know, the usual shipping. And she got back to her room, but she didn't want to wake her roommate up. Um, so she left the light off. She heard these like creaking noises, like sex noises, maybe she thought. And she was really embarrassed, and for some reason she didn't just, like, leave, and her roommate didn't notice that she'd come in, which doesn't seem particularly likely. Um, and so she just, like, tried to sleep through it, and whenever she woke up the next morning, she looked over and saw her roommate's, like, bloody dead body on the bed next to her, and written on the wall in blood was the message, aren't you glad you didn't turn on the lights? Hello and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam, and we're here to tell you a story. Every week we take a look at stories we tell again and again. And what our myths and our misdeeds, our facts and fables and fears say about us as humans. We want to thank everybody that's commented on our podcast, that has left reviews, that has told their friends about it, reached out to us on Twitter, tweeted at us, tweeted about us. We love you all. Very much. You're the best. So, yes, thank you all. We're happy to have you as part of the Just a Story family. We're going to come up with a really catchy name for our followers at some point. Uh, if you have any suggestions. Also, if you're interested in telling your own version of an urban legend for our opening, get in contact with us either through email, Twitter, or even in your review that you leave with five stars and lots of compliments. And we would be more than happy to figure out a way to make that happen. So today we're talking about a classic urban legend. This is kind of in the pantheon. It's an old one, but a good one. It's I think one that a lot of people remember hearing growing up. It's actually still circulated. It's one that has a lot of variations. Absolutely. And a lot of different names, if you were to look into it. Sometimes it's called The Roommate's Death. And other times it's called Aren't You Glad You Didn't Turn On The Lights, which kind of spoils the ending. There are a lot of different versions of this story, as any good urban legend does. It's going to change change over time, change with its teller, and change with the audience. And it's going to reflect different social concerns as it's repeated. So this story came about in the 60s. In fact, it did. Which is interesting because that's the time when colleges were integrating. And so what do you mean by integrating? Oh, right. There's more than one of those. I mean, men's colleges and women's colleges were combining, and women were going to co-ed colleges, and that's why there's such a high trade on that word, co-eds. The attraction of young co-ed but anyway <laughs> there's no way that boys will be able to resist these co-eds and there's no way to keep your daughters locked up and safe when you're not holding the key to their bedroom door in your clammy suburban hand or their chastity belts right I, I guess you could send them away in a chastity belt but I would think that using a communal bathroom in a chastity belt would not be very fun yeah just think of how great the communal bathrooms that your dorm was if you had a chastity belt and you use the communal bathroom they'd call you clank 
But so the, yeah, so this story came about in the '60s when women were starting to go to colleges with men, mm-hmm. and anytime you put men and women in the same room together, nothing good can happen. Oh, I so disagree. But yeah, like from a parental standpoint, I get it. In this story, there are two women, and pretty much the hallmarks of the story, what sets it apart from others, and kind of holds universally true across tellings, is that one of the women dies and the other woman finds her or finds out that she's dead in some way right and i think that even the implication of whether the woman was present for the murder or just slept all night in the room with her murdered body varies right and i think one of the most popular versions starts with a woman who has a roommate and she is off being you know good little student and she's studying and she the story changes but she goes back to the room the lights are off she kind of sneaks in and gets a book she needs or in some stories she just goes to bed but the lights are off she knows that her roommate's there and she hears that squeak 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 like the psycho noise no 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 like the like the spring oh bed spring spring she knows someone's getting busy right and there was no sock on the door very rude of the roommate scrunchy depending in the 90s telling it's a scrunchy i'm kidding (laughs) And so she goes to sleep trying to ignore this lewd axe going on in the bunk next to her. Right, and it always makes me think about that scene in Forrest Gump where Forrest touches Jenny's boob and the horrified roommate is looking at camera as it pulls out. So the next day, she wakes up, turns on the light. I guess she's up early. And finds a message on the wall. Bum, bum, bum. Written in blood. Blood. It's not funny. That says, aren't you glad you didn't turn on the light? The roommate is dead in the bed. Dead, dead, dead. Like, completely mutilated. In some versions of the story, there's no writing. She just finds the dead body. And in a lot of the scholarly work on this, they point out these really terrible details that are always there in the telling of the story. Like, her throat was cut out, or there's blood dripping, or you can see the stab wounds, or her leg was cut off, or just all these crazy things that are always included in the telling of the story. There's some gore. Always some amount of blood and gore. Or it has to make it even more terrible. Right, and it's interesting, too, that all the wounds sort of imply the presence of a knife. Like, it's never that she's strangled, it's never that she's been shot, she's been stabbed. Right, and our good old folklorist friend, Alan Dendees, has a field day with this. Oh, Alan. I bet you've been reading Freud again, haven't you, Alan? What does Alan have to say? Yeah, Dundee's is a big fan of Freud. We've kind of talked about Freud and Dundee's uh, in some of our past episodes. Like, The Hook was one that had a lot of of Freud and a lot of Dundee's. And then we had Freud in our psycho episodes. Of course we did. We cannot not have a little bit of Freud and Dundee's in this one. Dundee's gives the psychoanalytical approach and talks about the penetration and how this is related to sexual acts. Oh. And it is important to point out that a lot of times the girl is, thinks that her roommate is having sex with her boyfriend or with a guy. That she brought home from some college party. Yeah, some some really dirty, lecherous 
frat house and that's why she does not interrupt right and it's so so you have the penetration part and then you also have the blood part which people like to reference as that virginal blood the hymen breaking the the tokens of the young woman's virginity as the old testament would say so yay hymen's penetration i mean we were like not even like 10 minutes into the episode yet we've already pulled out the big guns hold on oh wait is there more hold on. oh you just wait hold on to your chastity belts so Another important point of the story to point out is that this girl lived, and she lived for a few different reasons. She did not go out to the bar slash party slash frat house and wasn't drinking and carousing with men, so she didn't get picked up by this murderer and killed. And also, she was not killed because she did not interrupt this sexual act either. She was being, you know, the good girl. And her roommate was being, in big quotation marks, like the whore. Yeah, Mm. she was sleeping around and picked up this guy, and that's why she was killed. If the roommate is like, oh, she must be with a guy, she has to be the kind of girl that you would believe would bring a guy home, right? Like, it doesn't stand to reason that this would be the isolated event. For the roommate to think that, she's gotta be just a tramp, tramp, trampy, tramp, tramp. As we talked about, this story is still told. And there really is a reason why it's still told. Okay. Because there's still that innate fear of something like this occurring. Of your roommate being murdered? Well, of someone being murdered by a stranger. Mm-hmm. We assume it was a stranger. Right. Right, we do. I think that fear is especially prevalent in people who are moving out of their parents' care for the first time. Right, this also fits with that classic urban legend idea that it's tell- it's a modern Aesop's fable. <laughs> it's a mod- There's no fox. There are no animals, unfortunately. If there were animals, it would be so much nicer, though. <laughs> if she was raped and killed by a fox? Well, if she was a chicken or something, and okay. she got her head bitten off. Or- okay, yeah. That would probably fit. But it's giving a moral tale. It's a warning story for these to guard their virtue in the big bad world yes that they're going to join right where there will be boys well i mean to be fair just to play devil's advocate a lot of sexual assaults and violent crimes do happen on college campuses right this is something that's been in the news a lot recently and really came to the forefront in the 90s a lot of college campuses were having these assaults and rapes and other terrible things and they were really keeping it hush-hush. They were not telling anybody about this. And this all really came to a head in 1990. Most of the time when a violent act occurred, especially sexual assault, it was sort of handled by a disciplinary committee within the college system. That still happens. Yeah. I know. But in 1990, that changed ostensibly. The Cleary Act was passed. That sounds like someone's name. It is. This was pushed through by the family of Janie Cleary. She was a 19-year-old student at Lee University, and she was raped and murdered in the campus hall uh, of residence in 1986. So it's like a dorm. Right. So this really happened. Oh, of course this happened. This happened on more than one occasion. But this particular case is what pushed through the bill. And they sued, the family sued sued the university, stating that they would have never let their daughter go there if they had known about the several cases that happened on this campus in the past few years before. So the act requires universities to release information like this. An interesting point that I saw was that a lot of universities are frequently investigated under this act. And one of the schools that's currently being 
investigated is Penn State with all the Sandusky terribleness that happened there. And so you can very easily look up the stats on this. So there's a lot of crime happening on college campuses. In 2010, 19,695 crimes were reported to college and university campus police. 97% 97 of these were property crimes, but 3% were violent crimes. So of the violent crimes reported on college and university campuses, 53% were aggravated assaults, 29% were robberies, 18% were forcible rapes, and 0.2% were murder or non-negligent manslaughter. That's interesting. Actually, it was only in 2013 that the FBI removed the word forcible from their description of rape. So that's why that word is there, if you're wondering. Because this is from 2010, correct? So that's a lot of crime. And you can look up and see which campuses these occurred on specifically, in theory? Right, in theory. So if you were sending your daughter, little Dorothy June, which I assume is your daughter's name, away to college, you could get online, do a quick Google search of state you and figure out if she's going to be non-negligently homicided. Yes, but you know, as we talked about hooking up episode, most of these rapes and terrible things that occur are done by people that they know. So you can send Dorothy June to St. So-and-So's University instead, but if Dorothy June makes friends with boy who is a, not a nice boy, he still could murder her in theory. You can't choose your kids' friends for them. How protected can they really be? So I think that's you know, a very obvious surface level read of this story. You know, there is something to it. And there is like the idea that at the time that this story was heavily propagated and widely circulated for the first time, there was a lot of anxiety about this poetization. There was a lot of hostility toward women from some men. I mean, a fringe group like the MRA would be now kind of for the internet and gaming. MRA is? The men's rights activist. We'll we'll save that for another episode. It's a classy guys. Classy Uh, I wish you could see my face when I say it all out. There is like a thought that there was a lot of hostility because women were sort of invading this male space and kind of a lot of hostility toward women in general when they come into public space. And so there was a backlash and you still see this played out today in the Greek system. There's systematized behavior that sort of instills deference in female participants. So like there are parties with themes that require the girls to dress in very provocative or toga, toga, toga. I don't even know if it, I don't know if you could call a toga scantily clad. Oh, you can very easily make a toga scantily clad. It's like one shoestring away from disrobing. There's also copious amounts of alcohol provided. The boys arrange the girls' transportation to and from the parties. They've created the system where they obviously have the upper hand, you know, Rats can have parties at their houses, sororities can't have parties, etc. Even today, this is still kind of being played out. And I, you have to imagine that it was worse when women were first introduced to the equation in the 60s. But now, it's such a tradition that no one really questions it. But that helped to inspire this sense of fear and agitation among campus women. Instead of putting it on guys you actually knew, it just became like this nameless, faceless assailant that was going to hurt you or take advantage of you or, you know, this feeling of powerlessness. And it still very much limits women's movements in that space. There's a study done on how women behave as a result of fear. And 
one of the things that I found interesting as I read it was, despite whether they report being afraid to go out alone at night, very few do. Or despite saying that they don't consider what they're wearing when they go out at night, they do. And so this is one of those places where that kind of omnipresent fear takes on a form of the guy that comes in and murders your roommate. So you can definitely see that this is a warning story. There's a moral to it. This is the cautionary tale. Yes, as many urban legends are. I'm going to take a little aside here because my little Catholic bells are ringing. You have Catholic bells? I do. What do they sound like? They're like the little bells. Ding, ding, ding. Okay. Yeah, it's not like a big church bell. It's like the little bells they use. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> but I have to use my Catholic schooling for something. And why not stick it in the podcast? So I can't help but think of the writing on the wall. That's Old Testament. It is. So, but what is the term writing on the wall? You know, whenever someone, people say that all the time. That's a common colloquialism or saying. What do you think when someone says that? I always think the jig is up. The writing on the wall. The inevitable conclusion. Right, like, this is going to happen. It's set in stone kind of thing. Yeah, and so this actually does come from the Old Testament. And it's this story, it's in Daniel, in chapter 5. And Daniel, for those of you that don't know, this takes place during the Babylonian diaspora. So whenever... I like how you say that, like, a wide... It's going to be, like, two people. Like... (laughs) (laughs) So whenever the Jews kicked out of Jerusalem, they dispersed, and a lot of them were taken into Babylon. Daniel is part of the court of King Belshazzar. That's such a great name. Is and he's having a big party. Of course he is, because it's Babylon, and, and he's the king. He's you know drinking and hanging out with all of his concubines. I'm sure there were belly dancers and things. Uh, definitely, they're having a good time, and he wants to go show off. And he calls for them to bring the goblets of silver and gold that were taken from Jerusalem from the temple. Oh, that seems like a. So they're drinking one out of their fancy goblets, and they're praising all their false idols. Guess who does not like that? God. God is not a fan. Remember, this is Old Testament God, wrathful God. Angry Jewish God. Suddenly, as they're having this big old party, a hand appears and writes on the wall. No one can read it, none of the priests or anything, so they call Daniel. So Daniel reads it, and he has some bad news. He reminds king that his father nebuchadnezzar also a great name was arrogant and felt that his power was greater than that of gods the jewish god and he was cast down to eat grass like an ox daniel prayed for him and the king eventually realized the error of his ways and was put back in power belshazzar didn't learn anything from this he did not learn from the errors of his father mm-hmm. he was too arrogant and the writing on the wall said meaning God has measured your sovereignty and put an end to it. You have been weighed in balance and found wanting. Your kingdom has been divided and given to Medes and the Persians. So the king says, hey, thanks for reading that. Gives him a bunch of gold, appoints him to a big high seat. And guess what happens that night? Nothing good. Was he killed by an assailant while the lights were up? He was. Oh, <laughs> He was killed. Lucky at, guess. He was killed at night. His father was humbled by God, learned his lesson, learned to be a good boy. Belshazzar didn't learn shit. He blasphemed against God and had his kingdom taken away and given to others, and he was killed in his sleep. Okay, I can see some, some vague similarities here between this and the urban legend. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it comes from this. I just think it's interesting. Let's take the girls. What We give them names. 
Would you pour some more wine in my silver goblet, please? Yes. I got these from the Ikea near the Temple Mount. Oh, lovely. So, let's call the girl who is murdered. Let's call her Veronica. Okay. And let's call the girl who's not murdered, Betty. Betty. Just for clarity's sake. So, in this scenario, there have been women who have been made examples of before, and Veronica didn't learn her lesson? Or is this lesson for Betty? I think you can look at it either way. Okay. Everyone's heard stories like this. You were warned by your parents. You Mm. were warned at church. You were warned by the activities director at your freshman orientation. Your RA. Yes. No boys allowed. And so she should have known better. Yeah, she was asking for it. Definitely asking for it. And I sure hope that Betty learns her lesson from this, too. Right. Sweet, sweet, virginal, good girl Betty. Who was at the library studying. So my... Freud bells are ringing, I have to tell you. Right, this does bring to mind the Madonna horror complex. Yeah. But, you know, before we go into that, you know, let's talk about what those words mean. Oh, they mean... Like, Madonna, like the singer? Yes. No. Like a virgin. Madonna, like a virgin. I know what the Madonna means. Are your Catholic bells ringing again? Yes, it keeps <laughs> happening. Your Madonna bells may be ringing, but I think that... Do you have whore bells? I have whore bells and they're ringing. Well, you know what? The whore bells are got to be more interesting than my Catholic bells. <laughs> so go ahead. All right. So it's very easy to call a woman a bad girl or a whore, unfortunately. We use that term lovingly. And in big fat quotation marks. When there is an assault, it's really easy for any woman who has been assaulted to be painted in a negative light. And just to prove that point before we go any further, I want to look at a case that should be very black and white um, and tell you some of the things that were said. There was a girl in Cleveland, Texas, because it's always in Texas. Always in Texas. Always in Texas. Sorry, guys. (laughs) Sorry, rest of the states. And uh, she was raped by 18 men who were middle school age through 27 years old. 18, shit. And it was all captured on video. And for the bonus round, this girl was 11. 11 years old? 11 years old. So it sounds to me like she was a pretty legitimate victim. Like it would be hard to have any negative feelings toward an 11-year-old girl who was gang raped on video camera. Right? I would guess they said she was asking for it. They did, in fact. The defense attorney in court out loud in front of people from his mouth said like the spider and the fly wasn't she saying come into my parlor said the spider to the fly and another man said i wouldn't call her a spider she was just an 11 year old girl and he said i hope nothing like this ever happens to your two teenage sons this is the guy that gives lawyers a scumbag name yes he does but in addition to those comments made by a defense attorney who was defending his client, at Still. least. I know, it's terrible. I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying, like, you have to come up with a strategy. And... But in addition to him, the New York Times ran this. How could so many men have been drawn into such an act? And then they went on to explain that the victim dressed older than her age, wearing makeup and fashions more appropriate for a woman in her 20s. He added that... She would hang out with teenage boys at the playground. That hussy. 
I mean, like... And it's coming from a bastion of liberalism. <laughs> and so we do live in a culture where any victim can be quickly, easily made to seem like a smoldering temptress. I mean, how could anyone resist that Hollister tank top she was wearing? If you didn't believe victim blaming existed before, here you go. But in addition to victims, we're really willing to make any woman who mentions sex into a whore. My example for this is Sandra Fluke. And for those of you who don't remember Sandra Fluke, she was a law student who spoke before Congress about university health insurance plans providing coverage for contraceptives to female students. And she was before Congress speaking and she said that you know people were paying up to a thousand dollars a year for birth control because it wasn't covered by campus health plans and so rush limbaugh yay rush limbaugh yay rush limbaugh says what does that make her it makes her a slut right it makes her a prostitute she wants to be paid to have sex she's having so much sex she can't afford the contraceptive that doesn't even make sense well, if you're Rush Limbaugh, it does. If I mean, you're high on as many pills as he was at that time, I'm sure. I wonder if his insurance covered his pills. Probably so. So, despite the fact that she is clearly a very well-educated, thoughtful woman who is aware of current policies and current events, and she's dressed modestly. I'm doing scare quotes around modestly because I hate that word. And conducting herself professionally, despite the fact that no one knew whether she was actually sexually active, let alone promiscuous. Which, contrary to popular belief, are not exactly the same thing. She was publicly ridiculed just for merely acknowledging the existence of sex and contraceptives. This is a woman in a professional setting who, by all rights, should be taken seriously, and she is literally called a slut in the media. Right, and you can see that that's where some people lie. They will take the mentioning of women's sexuality as an affront to themselves. That's... Freud would have a lot to say about that. <laughs> Freud has a lot to say about a lot of the things we talk about, which makes me think I need to get analyzed. <laughs> Yeah, you can definitely see that there's a common language going on to describe these victims of sexual assault. I cannot imagine calling someone a slut that just was requesting birth control. Right, I mean, I'm but someone you're a that... medical provider. You better not. No, there. No, that's that is actually a good point. That that's not the case, and I think that's terrible. There are plenty of medical providers out there and pharmacists that have a big problem prescribing birth control because they don't feel that it fits with their morals but they use these terms like slut and that they're bad girls and dressed older than her age and wore makeup and scantily clad and asking for it and they're spider to the fly yes i can't believe someone actually said that out loud (laughs) it echoes this model that we've built into society where women are the gatekeepers And men just can't help themselves. And this is discussed at length in a book called The Purity Myth, which is excellent. Pause. Go read it. Go feel your feminine flowers. Read The Purity Myth. Put your feminine cap on like we have today. Pet your cap. And then come back and join us. You feeling angry? Feel in touch with your inner goddess? (laughs) Is your inner goddess pissed? Because mine is. Mine is too. You say... Women are gatekeepers, men can't help themselves, and then how do you help? I hate that, though. I hate that I, as a man, am said that I cannot control myself. That I just, there's... And you know what? You should get angry about that. If if I'm presented with a scantily clad woman, the only thing that my reptilian brain can do is say, I must fuck that thing. It's absolutely ridiculous. In this light, 
any assault can be viewed as a failure to adequately protect yourself and cast the woman in a bad light. And I think that that mainly happens because people still perceive like sexual assault, especially as a extension of sex itself and not a violent crime. Right, when a much better comparison is saying that someone that got drunk and walked into the street and was hit by a car, uh, that person should not have been drinking and walking into the street. Well, yes, they shouldn't have been, but it's not his fault that they were hit by a car. Right. There was this one gem of a senator, Doug Henry. Tennessee senator. Tennessee senator. It says, rape, ladies and gentlemen, is not today what rape was. Like in the good old days. Like in the good old days. I mean, can't you just hear him sipping on his mint julep, reclining in his rocking chair? But he says, rape, when I was learning these things, is a violation of a chaste woman against her will by some party, not her spouse. Today, it's simply, let's don't go forward with this act. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> like, you know, an, an interesting point is that marital rape. Marital rape. Yes, it's a thing. Was still legal in many states, including Louisiana, until very recently. Until like um, the 90s. If rape's not what it was, what is it? Well, Bill Napoli, another senator. God, what would we do for sound bites about how terrible people's opinions of rape are if we did not have politicians? was asked like when he thinks abortion should be legal and this is where he makes that distinction between like real rape and fake rape that so many people are fond of making and not saying they've made Ah, legitimate rape Ah, legitimate rape you know shut that whole thing down whatever but he says a real life description to me would be a rape victim brutally raped savaged the girl was a virgin she was religious She was planning on saving her virginity until she was married. She was brutalized and raped, sodomized as bad as you could possibly make it, and is impregnated. I mean, that girl could be so messed up, physically and psychologically, that carrying that child could very well threaten her life. So some really good lines drawn there. Very clear, very legitimate. (laughs) Yeah, that's the the namesake. So virginity is brought up frequently. So virginity is brought up frequently. Yeah, that's trotted out a lot. Chaste, in the soundbite we have before of the Tennessee senator, Douglas Henry, kind of steps in there for virginal. It can also mean monogamous woman who is married. But yeah, virginity is trotted out a lot. And that's because for a long time, it was a property crime, basically, to sully a virgin. My Catholic bells ring again. <laughs> okay. And don't forget that, you know, stealing a cow is higher on the Ten Commandments than coveting a wife. And that's just coveting. I don't even think rapes, rape gets an honorable mention. So why do we care so much about virgins? I mean, I think there is a old school biological reason for it. Wait, wait, wait. What the fuck is a virgin? Well, it's not a medical definition. (laughs) Wait, I'm sorry. Did you just tell me that there's not a medical definition for virgin? Right. Even though people like to do virginity tests, and I have been asked to check if someone was a virgin before. In real life? In real IRL. Oh, God. Okay. Okay. Of course you have. There really is not a virginity test. Can men be virgins? 
Well, it depends on the definition, right? So if you consider the definition of a virgin as someone that has not had sexual intercourse, then that definition is valid. You either, what is sexual that's, intercourse? Exactly. If you have intercourse, intercourse is a definition. You know, it's penis and the vagina. So if you use that as a definition, then there you go. That's very clearly stated, but it is very much a social definition. Does anal count? No, well, it depends on which Jesus camp you go to. (laughs) So are you telling me that, like, a woman who's a lesbian her entire life can technically be a virgin? Like, if she is, like, a gold star lesbian and, like... 100% depends on your definition of what a virgin is. So who's defining virgins? A lot of different people. So, you know, in olden days, people would say, oh, a virgin was someone who still had an intact hymen. For those not in the know, a hymen is a thin piece of tissue in the vaginal canal. Mm -hmm. That's it. Goes away when you have intercourse well not really so it can kind of go away you know whenever (laughs) so So it's a very thin piece of tissue and it can be easily broken like by a sneeze no we'll get a little more force than that something like a hard fall okay or back in the day riding a horse or a bicycle one of those victorian bicycles there with the big wheels no only the victorian bicycles obviously it break when you're not having sex, not totally reliable. Then oh no, completely unreliable. It almost has a mythos around it, and virginity really has a mythos around it as well for millennia. Absolutely. I mean, virginity has been tested by doing everything from making a woman stand over a barrel of onions while they were set on fire and seeing if the smell came out of her mouth. Interesting. <laughs> because they thought that the hymen would have kept it from going all the way up through her mouth. Ah, uh, the magical hymen. The magical goodness. hymen. Popular test was taking a piece of string at the base of the skull, the bony part, in the back, stretching it over the cranium, down to the tip of the nose, and then using that measurement to gauge the girl's neck size, and if the string was... Too short to go around her neck. Obviously not a virgin. You want to hear the logic on that one? Sure. So the vagina used to be called the neck of the womb. So it was believed that if one neck was tampered with, the telltale signs would show up on the other neck. Oh, very logical. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Science. Science. (laughs) I mean, there was some reason for worrying about virginity way back in the day. Proof of paternity. Right, and like the grunts days, like in the days where you're grunting and trading beans, right? Right, I mean, up to close to modernish times, you know, where you want to make sure the the kids that you're supporting are your kids. Right, because this is genetics, and we want to pass on our genes to our kids, and we're giving these kids a really good chance for survival. Right, a little Darwinism there. Yeah, once we had the idea of private property, paternity became an issue, because we wanted to keep our property for our children. If the best person to marry is a virgin, and men want to get married, and they want to have wives and children and things, and you have daughters who are virgins, you have a valuable resource. Right, supply and demand. So, as men figured out that they wanted to marry women who had never been sullied by other men, fathers of daughters who had never been sullied by other men cashed in on that. And they would use that trade of their daughters that they had been supporting 
for resources such as bride price kind of trades or strengthening alliances or cementing ties within a community. And they could really stand to gain by having girls that were very marriageable and eligible. This actually still goes on today. Of course it goes on in third world countries. There are women today that go online and sell their virginity. Oh my God, there are. And it's just amazing. Google that. Google that. Just, yeah, we can't. So there was an element of practicality to it in a way. But you also have the magic power of virginity. Uh, So apparently sex is distracting. And it keeps you from being as close to the divine as you might otherwise be. Did you know this? I'm sorry, I was having my every six second thought. (laughs) Sex is distracting? What? Okay. Throughout history, people have thought that people who don't have sex aren't distracted by it, which, if anyone's ever seen a 12-year-old boy, is not true. There were always kind of these super special virgins who had super special virgin superpowers. Is that your next comic book? Now it is. One of the earliest cults or groups of virgins that had superpowers were the Vestal Virgins. And Vesta is the goddess of hearth and home Mm -hmm. in the Roman Mm -hmm. uh, pantheon. These women were charged with keeping the home fires burning. They tended the eternal fire of Rome. And they were chosen when they were very young. They were expected to do 30 years service. I think they started when they were around six years old. And after their term of service was up, they were allowed to marry, but they didn't have to. Occupied a very unique position in Roman society, especially for women. They were allowed to settle disputes once someone stole their funding. And that year there was a terrible famine. And they believed that the virgins had done that. And so they became even more mystical and mythologized at that point. And if you go into anthropology texts, you'll find so much about the magical virgin powers. Magical virgin powers. I did not know it was a thing, but it's a thing. I wasn't Catholic. I didn't have the Catholic. Well, you should know about them. Because the most magical of magical virgin powers Mm. belong to a Virgin Mary. The Madonna. Exactly. The Madonna, not the singer. So the Virgin Mary, for those not in the know. Mary. She was this Jewish girl. About 2,000 years ago. Had this baby. He's kind of important-ish. Not as important as the Beatles. Almost as important as the Beatles. Coming in close to Oasis. Jesus, you know. But there's this interesting mythology to go along with Mary saying that she was a virgin. Now, there's a lot of theological writing about this. Because it's mentioned in two of the Gospels. Not all four of the Gospels. But one of the ways that Jesus kind of got his credibility, his his cred, was... Like Drake, did he start from the bottom? He did start from the bottom. Wheelchair Jimmy. He started from the bottom a lot more than Drake did. (laughs) But that he was born of a virgin. This was prophesied by Isaiah. And some people say it was kind of added in, those later gospels. Oh, you're so going to get your Catholic bell wrong tonight (laughs) for saying that. To kind of make sure that he fit in that 
prophecy. But this has become a huge tenet of Catholicism. This virginal mother figure is venerated in the Catholic religion. That kind of virginity model become very important in Catholicism. There are a lot of saints that, due to their purity and virginity, were saved by God. Uh, one of the great ones is St. Agatha. She okay. refused the advances of a Roman prefect because she promised her virginity to God. And he sent her to a brothel and she was tortured and they removed her breasts and she was sentenced to burn at the stake. Okay, this is not sounding like God did much to help. But he did. He sent an earthquake to save her because right. she was pure. How nice. So that. again, magic virgin powers. Several, several saints that have similar stories to this. Mary was sort of made to be a big thing by the Catholic. But one interesting thing is in the iconography, which would have been the pop culture of the time, she started appearing as this very queenly, regal figure. You can frequently see with blonde hair and stained glass and portraits. And of course, the Jewish woman in the Middle East did not have blonde hair. This was a sign of purity. And so she became kind of a pop icon of her day. And women, you know, were entering convents and becoming nuns. And because this is the virginity of Virgin Mary had been very glamorized. And also, at this point in time, becoming a nun was one of the few ways that a woman could become literate or hold property. Nuns could hold on to family property. Like, they could inherit property for the use of the convent, and they could have money, and they could have education, and they could, you know, be involved in decision-making, and it was a very powerful position for women at this time. So, women were staying virginal to get to be elevated in society. And one of the great stories about nuns and the importance of their virginity is the story about the convent, where Viking invaders were coming to pillage the convent, and they knew that they were going to be raped by the Vikings invaders because pretty much that's what Vikings did. Rather than have that terrible fate befall them, they took knives and cut their noses off to spite their faces. It's where it comes from. Yes, so they would cut their noses off to spite their faces and the, when the Vikings saw them, they said I don't want any of that and just burned the convent down instead so they won. Good. And this, like, mythos around virginity continues. Uh, you see it, like, unicorns. Unicorns are about virgins. Yay, unicorns. Unicorns. These unicorns were not so friendly. They could only... Yeah, unicorns were, like, big on gouging people. I don't know how they became such a sweet thing. There was no Twilight Sparkle happening. They could only be captured if a virgin went and sat in a forest, and they would come up to the virgin and lay their horn in her lap. No secondary meaning to this story. <laughs> no. No, no. Um, and they could be captured at that point. Beautiful tapestry. That's it. Yep. Not going to that one. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. The woman was not a virgin. Gouge. With the horn. No secondary meaning. And then this became even more mythologized when Queen Elizabeth, who was also called, do you know? The Virgin Queen, huh? right? Yeah. When she came to power and was an unmarried queen who took power and never married. And so was, of course, virginal. Right, obviously, because if you're not married, how could you have sex? What I found so interesting about that idea is that Mary, Bloody Mary, had, you know, just killed all the Protestants and been like, so we're going to be Catholic now. And Elizabeth was like, bitch, please. And systematically decatholicized England, which meant taking 
taking out a lot of Marys, getting rid of all the Mary iconography. While that's fun because Bloody Mary is Mary, it's more fun because she is getting rid of the sort of female virgin figurehead of the Catholic Church and just happens to be standing there going... Hey, I'm the female figurehead of the Anglican church, and I'm a virgin. You can just transfer some of that Mary love over here. Makes me think of the time that my (laughs) uncles accidentally broke the Virgin Mary statue in the neighbor's yard and buried it and didn't tell my grandparents (laughs) till like 20 years later. When Mom Jay promptly dug it up and glued it back together and it's still on her back porch. Queen Elizabeth is a very fascinating figure. I think it's interesting that she's remembered as the Virgin Queen. Not that fucking badass who refused to get married. Not the queen that had a heart of the king, as she said to the troops dressed in a breastplate before they took on the Spanish Armada. Not as the left-handed queen, but the Virgin Queen. And that's something that still continues to this day. Women are characterized as being good purely because they're virgins. There's very little question of character or judgment or values or interest or intellect. It's just virginity. And this model really got very popular with the Victorians. You know, around the time that Sigmund Freud was... Ah, it's a good old Freud. We can talk about Freud again. One of Freud's many, many theories about sex... And we discussed the Oedipal Complex in the Psycho episode. And we talked about how that one's kind of, people are like, ah, it's probably just craziness. You crazy Freud. Ah, Sigmund. This one is kind of still thought as kind of legitimate. And it's called the Madonna Whore Complex. Okay. And so we've talked about the whore. Mm-hmm. And what we think about the whore and her sexual proclivity. That she has one at all is very offensive. The Madonna, the pure, virginal, magically powered woman with With her her, magic hymen. Magic hymen powers! And so Freud really put this theory out to explain men's anxiety towards women's sexuality. I didn't know that men had any anxiety about women's sexuality. He originally described this as psychic impotence. It's not nearly as catchy. But it's said to develop in men who see women as either you know, your saintly Madonna or your debased prostitute. In this theory, men want a sexual partner. Okay, that seems true enough. And that's kind of this complex desire. And they want to you know, do this thing that society says is bad, bad, bad. Dirty genital touching. But they also have to take this feelings and really put it up against their desire to have a respectable motherly partner Mm -hmm. the madonna right so they want a lady in the street but a freak in the bed exactly so well put or as freud would say where such men love they have no desire and where their desire they cannot love wow what an interesting distinction So you're split between affectionate and sexual currents and men's desire. And men are such basic bitches that they can't get it together to possibly reconcile that in one person. They have to have a Madonna and a whore because they're animals. Is that where he's going with this? Well, this is kind of what's cited in, like, why men have affairs and things like that, because they cannot just process these two ideas in one person. Oh, men and their tiny little brains. 
So, you know, having this kind of anxiety towards female sexuality, the man just categorizes women into those two categories. One that he can admire, and one he can find sexually attractive. I am so glad that we don't have sex with people we admire. Freud himself had a few different ideas of where this could come from. You know, we discussed, I thought you were going to say a few different Madonnas and whores, but okay. He probably did. We talked about the Oedipal Complex in the Psycho we did, episode. Yeah. We talked about the Muzzle. And that is one possible reason that man's primary hatred of women is stimulated by the child's sense that he's been made to experience intolerable frustration and or narcissistic injury at the hands of his mother. So in adulthood, this man-child seeks to avenge these mistreatments through sadistic acts on women who are stand-ins for his mother. But another thought is that it could be based on representations of women as either Madonnas or whores in mythology and in Judeo-Christian theology. Right, so Mary Magdalene versus Mary, mother of Jesus. Yeah, but everyone's read the Da Vinci Code knows that Jesus married Mary Magdalene. Well, obviously, you'd have to be Jesus to reconcile the Madonna whore complex, right? He's the only man who's successfully done it in the history of the world, and even then, we didn't write about it. Yeah, and so, of course, there's huge psychological problems in this because it separates women's desirability with the you know purity and maternal goodness and these are mutually exclusive traits and diametrically opposed right that you cannot be a sexual person and also a good good little housewife i have never encountered anything like that ever i've never seen women who are expected to stop being fun because they have children i've never seen women give up on ideas or independence etc because they need to get home and do the laundry that doesn't happen anymore right and so you can see how this still kind of holds weight that there you can easily find on the internet men that obviously have this complex yeah an anxiety towards women's sexuality and cannot deal with these two thoughts (coughs) rush limbaugh so you know who nursed one hell of a Madonna whore complex? Are we going to talk about a murderer? <laughs> Would it be a Just a Story podcast if we didn't? Richard Speck. Are you familiar with Richard Speck? I'm not. Okay. So Richard Speck was a man born the day before Pearl Harbor, and he grew up in rural Illinois, but later moved to... Where's all the murder, Jacob? Cleveland. It's always Texas. It's always Texas. Here in Texas, he committed a couple of assaults, and he was wanted by the law. He was also very, very angry with his mother, because after his father died when he was six, she had remarried. And this man was just not his father and very aggravating to Speck and became an alcoholic and was pretty abusive to him and the other kids and his mother and he didn't like it but then at the same time his mother was a whore because she married this man so he has lots of mother issues and lots of rage after he commits a rape in texas and he is wanted by the law he runs away to illinois and later specifically to chicago and in 1966 while he is in chicago he rings the doorbell of Corazan Amro, who is a nursing student. He shows her that he has a gun and tells her that he needs money to go to guess. Just guess where he's going. Texas. New Orleans. Where would anybody with any sense want to go? 
New Orleans, the desired destination of all murderers. He tells her that he needs to come in. He's not going to hurt her. Just needs money to get to New Orleans. Pushes his way in the door, and she's home with five other women at this point. So there's six women total in the house. Throughout the course of the night, three more come in, and he takes them all captive in one of the rooms of this like student housing townhouse. They're all very polite to him. When more women come home, they fall in line and sit in the room as he's instructed. He uses a knife to tear up a bed sheet and bind all the women with it. And he keeps repeating that he's not going to hurt them. At one point, three of the women had even run and hid in the closet. And one of the other girls in the home came and told them that they could come out because this man said he's not going to hurt them as long as they cooperate. And so to the very end, they cooperate. One by one, he leads them out of the room and stabs or strangles them and one of the victims is sexually assaulted but he single-handedly kills eight nurses. Now, if you're good at math, you know that there were nine nurses. One of them survived. The woman who opened the door for him, Corazon Amaro, uh, successfully hid under a bed in the room where they were being held captive. And apparently Speck lost count somewhere in that frenzy and did not realize that he'd left someone alive. Are your synchronicity bells ringing, Jacob? Lots of bells ringing. What does that remind you? Yeah, just like what we were talking about earlier. Someone comes in and brutally attacks somebody and someone survives. Right, and there's students and it's student housing and she survives by keeping her head down and not sort of turning on the lights. But it's interesting that all the other girls were trying to be good girls. They were trying to do what he said and he said that he wouldn't hurt them and he did. After the news gets out that there's a survivor, Speck tries to kill himself. He breaks a bottle and uses the glass to slice his wrist. Um, But he's taken to the hospital and the men who bring him into the hospital don't recognize him when someone sees this tattoo that he has this very conspicuous tattoo that was reported by the media they make the connection he has a tattoo on his body that says born to raise hell and you could say that that's kind of the writing on the wall for spec he's done after that yes absolutely so they bring in the survivor and in one of my favorite turns of the story she comes in dressed in her nurse's uniform and pretends to be working there and she passes by his room and looks in and says oh my god it's really him and at that point they know they have their man so she testifies against him in court which can you imagine being in the same room with that man after this has happened to you i can't testimony was quite compelling she was a very small woman uh she's 410 and when they ask her to identify her attacker man who killed her friends and roommates she got down from the stand and walked across to the defense table and pointed and said that is the man and he's this you know lumbering guy blonde and has this pockmarked face and looks like a monster next to this tiny petite girl and they use that language they call her a girl and refer to her as being small and all these it's kind of infantilizing language to play on the jury's sympathy throughout the case it works he's convicted and convicted forever he's sentenced to death originally and is overturned later and he has to just serve like 1500 years in jail so she's 
total badass, right? You would think people would have nothing negative to say about her. I would never have that much faith in people. Well, for example, Speck claimed that they brought it on themselves, that he had no plans to harm them until one of the women spat in his face as he was trying to fondle her. And that's really just when it went all downhill. I mean, if she had just shut up and let him do what he wanted, no problem, right? Yeah, so, of course, Speck blamed the victims on their deaths. Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, he wasn't a classy guy to begin with, but the good people of Chicago. I read an article where a woman was blogging about being a child at the time of the murder, which congratulations to you for learning how to use the internet. And she said that she remembered going into beauty salons with her mom and like hearing ladies gossip about the case. And they'd be like, oh, well, they just shouldn't have had those white girls. And they were those Filipinos. I mean, what do you expect? Ah, um, uh, good old racism. Ah, racism. Ain't it fun? But one of my favorite incarnations of like victim blaming in this case was actually depicted on Mad Men. where Only the best TV show ever. Yes. And it's in season five. The episode is called uh, Strange Bedfellows. And you see the female members of the cast reacting to the Speck case, which has made news. And as the step-grandmother figure is explaining to Sally what happened, because no one else will, she says, those girls got ready for bed. There was a knock on the door, and a handsome man had been watching them from afar. Which makes it sound like a screwed-up fairy tale. And then she goes on to say, all those young, innocent nurses in their short uniforms stirring his passion. So we have, again, someone blaming the victims, blaming these people that were completely innocent, completely pure of any problems that they had, making them into the whores, making them into the problem. This is... If they weren't wearing their short little nurses' uniforms, they wouldn't have been killed. And right, to be fair, this is a fictionalization, and this kind of language was just not reported um, at the time. But to contrast it, you have in um, Morrow's testimony, which I read, she talks about like how she knew the, where the girls were because they all had routines of going in to say their prayers before bed. And she knew that this girl was in this room because she typically goes in at least 30 minutes ahead of you know bedtime to say her prayers. And she said that the only thing she did as she laid under the bed while he raped the last victim in the room where she was, was to pray. Um, so the next time you're considering female victims in the cases of violent crime, especially sexual assault, and you want to tell yourself that they were asking for it, you want to tell yourself that they were just bad women, maybe you need to stop and think. That's got to be just a story. 